Well, why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to, um, where am I preaching from today? Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 here in just a couple of minutes, so you can hold your place there. If you need a Bible, there are uh, Bibles uh, on either side of the sound booth, and you are welcome uh, to one of those. I'm glad to see I've been hemmed in here by poinsettias. That's uh, that's neat. Uh, so, not that I walk much, but I'm definitely not going to walk much today. Um, all right. Well, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they assumed that they knew where you stood on some particular issue? And, and so they expressed their opinion, maybe very passionately, and then they turn to you and they say, isn't that right? And inside you're thinking, no, no, I don't think that's right at all. But you can't decide if it's worth it to, to say what you really think or if it's, if it's better to just be quiet. So what you end up doing is you mumble something that could sound like you agree without really committing to agreeing. You know, something like this. I know what you're saying. <laughs> By the way, if you need a tactic in those uh, situations, there you go. I know what you're saying. You don't commit to anything. You just say, yes, yes, I understand. I, I heard you. But inside, here's what you're thinking. I know what you're saying is complete nonsense. <laughs> that's, that's what you're actually thinking. You only say the first part, but you're thinking... Uh, both parts. You, you know, it's just the way it is. You get more than one person present in a place, and there is the potential for conflict. And just a high um, likelihood that not only is there a potential, but that at some point in time, conflict is going uh, to come. Uh, it happens when couples are dating. You know, the first few dates go along pretty well, normally. Uh, but then there's always some point where the initial conflict uh, comes into the relationships, uh, into the relationship. It happens uh, with significant regularity in marriages that conflict occurs, uh, at least in the marriage that I'm most familiar with. Uh, it... It happens among co-workers. It happens between parents and their kids. It happens with siblings. It happens in schools. Of course, we know very well that it happens in politics. And conflict happens in churches. It happens in all of these situations, in all of these institutions, because they all are made up of people. People equals conflict. You know, there's a temptation that we face when conflict comes, and that's to just run, to, to end the relationship, to end the friendship. But that's not a very workable plan for most of the conflicts that we have. I mean, how many times do you want to change jobs over a conflict with a coworker or a supervisor? Uh, how many marriages do you really want to have in a lifetime? Uh, I mean, if you run every time there's a conflict, uh, you're going to end up with lots and lots of marriages. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. Uh, you really can't change schools every time there's a conflict. And, and it's really not a workable plan to change churches 
every time there's a conflict. Now, there are those occasions, there are those times when, when that's certainly appropriate, but, but you don't want to run to a different church every time there is a conflict with someone in the church. The text that we're looking at today deals with unity within the body of Christ. Unity within the church, unity among Christians. And it gives us insight into how we can maintain unity with one another in spite of the conflicts that present themselves anywhere there are people. So I'll just mention here as part of this that one of the ways that we seek to guard the unity of this particular church is we try to give people good information right up front. Uh, in our newcomers class, we, we try to tell people uh, exactly how we view things and, and how we do things and, and exactly what we believe so that they can decide if this is something that they can be unified with. And if they look at it and they say, yes, I, I think I'm in agreement with that, then we say, great, we would love for you to become a member here. But if they look at something, they look at the information we provide, and they say, you know, there's something here that I just don't think I can uh, go along with, then we lovingly encourage them to find another church that they can be uh, become a member of. And that is because we want to guard uh, our unity. But here's the truth. Even when we do that kind of work up front, the fact remains that challenges do come to our unity with one another. And we need to know how to face those challenges. We need to learn how to live in unity with other Christians, how to uh, be united in the body of Christ. We need to understand how unity is maintained. And so let's look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. You can follow along as I read, and then we'll see what we can learn from these verses about how unity is maintained within the church. And I'll mention before we start this that what is specifically in view here is unity within the church. But there are some good principles here for unity in any context. And uh, so you say, well, I'm not, I'm not a part of this church. Well, there's still some really good things here uh, for you to take from today's passage. And who knows, you might end up a part of the church sometime. So here's what it says. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think as we start out here, something that's really helpful for us to keep in mind is that there have always been conflicts within the church. There has never been a golden age of the church that was conflict-free. You know, we sometimes have this romantic notion about uh, the church in the New Testament. And we view that church as being the church where everything worked exactly like it should. Everyone loved each other in a way that was perfectly pleasing to God. They were perfectly unified, and that was the church that really lived for God. But friend, the romantic notion we have about the New Testament church just isn't true. It's not 
the way that it was. There has never been a, a period in the history of the church where everything worked exactly like it should. There has never been a time when believers all got along with each other. There's never been a time when all selfish interests were laid aside and believers regularly gathered in circles and sang together kumbaya. That has never occurred. The church has always dealt with conflict because the church has always been made up of people. The church is the people of God. The early church had all kinds of conflicts. Keep in mind uh, that the early church was bringing together Jewish and Gentile Christians into the one body of Christ. And, you know, we don't really have um, an adequate example or illustration of what that endeavor was like. Uh, I mean, we don't have any groups of people now within our context that we can say, hey, this is how challenging that really was. I mean, I guess you could think something like... uh, Hatfields and McCoys come to faith in Jesus and they have to go to the same local church. You, you know, maybe that gives us some, some idea, but probably even that doesn't really do justice uh, to what was happening here. There was huge opportunity for conflict. William MacDonald writes this about the, the uh, rift that existed between uh, Jews and Gentiles. He says, it is the greatest division that has ever existed between human beings. Greatest division that's ever existed between human beings. Now, in Christ, what was happening in the early church, that division had been eliminated. But now the people had to walk it out. God had made them one, but now they had to learn to live as one. And there was conflict everywhere. Conflict over circumcision. Did Gentile believers need to be circumcised. Some Jewish Christians said yes. The apostles ended up saying no, but there was conflict. Do the Gentile Christians need to observe the Mosaic law? Some said yes. Some said no. What about meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Are we allowed to eat that or not? Some said no. Some said yes. Huge opportunities for conflict. They had them then, and we have them now. I almost don't even want to give examples of conflicts that we have now because we have been blessed in this church not to have too many, and I don't want to give any ideas. (laughs) So, here are a few. Here are a few. Politics. And that's all I'll say about that. Debatable theological issues. You know, one of the things, and I I think I've told you this before, but one of the things that I have been so thankful for in this church is we have dealt with almost zero conflict over debatable theological issues. I'm just so thankful for that. Conflict. How often do you have communion? Why don't you have it every week? The music is kind of loud. I'd like the music to be louder, please. (laughs) We have both groups in the church. Too loud, not loud enough. Both groups. I hear from both of you. 
So we just make it the way I like it and leave it go at that. <laughs> oh, just, just joking. Just joking. I actually say nothing about it. So Probably should have left that one go. And, of course, the greatest opportunity for conflicts within a church are relational conflicts. You know, we're working together in ministry and conflict arises. We're doing a project together and someone uh, doesn't do what we think ought to be done. Someone on the team is perceived as not fulfilling their responsibility and there's conflict. A leader is perceived as being a micromanager and there is conflict. A leader is seen as being too hands-off, and there is conflict. A child is corrected by someone other than its parent, and there is conflict. Someone fails to say thank you when we help them out, and there is at least internal conflict. Someone accidentally fails to acknowledge us as we walk down the three-foot wide hallway, and, uh, and there is conflict. I mean, they basically ran into me, and they still didn't say hi. (laughs) By the way, probably the biggest offender of that in this entire church is me. And if I have ever walked by you, even in the three-foot narrow hallway, and not said hi, first of all, I am sorry. Second of all, please understand that I probably had no idea that I had just been offensive. I was probably distracted by something and on my way somewhere and just, you know what they say, you're in a zone. Sometimes they say you're in the ozone. So if I've ever done that to you, I'm sorry. And if anyone else has ever done that to you, I'm sure they're sorry. But there are all kinds of conflicts that happen in a church. They happen then and they happen now. So, How, with the potential for conflict, and with that potential occasionally, maybe frequently, becoming reality, how can unity be maintained within the church? This text that we've read today gives us some good insight into that. Paul begins this way, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord, Uh, uh, prisoner for the Lord, some translations say of the Lord, Paul is literally and figuratively captive to Christ. The point here is that he belongs to the Lord. This is his identity, someone who belongs to the Lord. And then he urges those who he's writing to, he urges them to, to live a life worthy of the calling they have received, worthy of their calling as followers of Jesus Christ. William MacDonald writes this, a life worthy of the calling is one that is consistent, listen to this, with the Christian's dignified position as a member of the body of Christ. Living worthy of the calling is understanding that yours, mine, is a dignified position. Unity within the body of Christ, I believe, is maintained as we first remember who we are. As we remember that ours is a dignified position. We belong to Christ. That is a privilege. It is a dignified thing. 
the Apostle Peter, in uh, describing what it means to be a Christian, described it as being a part of a royal priesthood. Royal. Dignified. Set apart. It's special. Now, remembering who we are doesn't mean that we'll never need to be involved in a conflict. But remembering who we are can help us stay out of petty conflicts, unnecessary conflicts, and it can help us to handle those necessary conflicts in a manner that's appropriate. You've probably had this experience. I I hope you have. At some point in your life, there was some wrong action that you were going to take, and you were restrained from taking it because you remembered in that moment to do this is going to dirty up the name of my family. I I don't want my family attached to this thing I'm about to do. You know, the family of the uh, Queen of England, on a number of occasions, have failed to live up to their dignified position. Prince Harry has repeatedly failed (laughs) to live up to his dignified position. The idea behind remembering who we are is that doing so can serve as a restraining force in our lives. We we choose not to wallow in the mud because ours is a dignified position. We, We choose not to be enticed into the mud over something that is petty, something that is unimportant. And we choose, if conflict can't be avoided, to face it with tact and with consideration for all involved because we want to represent our family name, Christian, well. So when someone in the church shares a viewpoint that we disagree with, remembering who we are, we decide, is is it worth it to enter into this conflict? And here's the thing. Often, it will not be. If it is, then you approach it with grace, tact, because you know who you are and you know that's what's becoming of a Christian. Our exalted standing in Christ calls for corresponding godly conduct. And so we relate to one another respectfully. Paul continues, be completely humble and gentle. Humility is the state of having a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance. Humility was uh, regarded in the first century when uh, Paul was writing this. It was regarded as something distasteful. People did not respect humility. And I would say that even though we may give lip service to respecting humility in our day, I think that humility is largely regarded as distasteful in our pagan culture. Self-promotion is the norm of the day. Self-esteem based on not much of anything is the norm of our day. But that's a different story. Gentleness, also called meekness, is a willingness to be the least if obedience to God requires it. Gentleness is submission in relation to others for the sake of Christ. And then I like this definition, uh, again offered by William MacDonald. 
Gentleness is the attitude that submits to God's dealings without rebellion. And then listen to this next one. And to man's unkindness without retaliation. So unity is maintained as we remember who we are. And then remembering who we are, we respond to those around us with humility and gentleness. We are called to be people who are completely humble. You know, so much of what gets us in conflict is thinking more of ourselves than we really ought to. Thinking that ours is the only way to think or that ours is the only way to do things. Thinking that our ideas are always the best ideas. And here's one that's a big problem in churches. Thinking that our ideas are always God-inspired ideas. Thinking that every thought of ours came to us directly from the Lord. Unity is maintained as we hold a modest opinion of ourselves. Letting go of the notion that we're always right. And everybody else in the church is always stupid. Sounded much funnier in my head. (laughs) As most of my jokes do. We are called to gentleness. We submit to God without rebellion. And here's an important one in maintaining unity. We accept some unkindness... Without retaliation. Friends, every perceived slight does not have to be investigated. Every ill-advised word that comes out of a brother or sister's mouth that sounds like maybe, perhaps, possibly, if I heard them right... It might have been sort of bad intent on their part the way they said that. It doesn't always have to be investigated. Sometimes the thank you that wasn't said just has to be accepted. We have to remember that we're ultimately working for Christ, not for the approval of each other. Sometimes the apparent snub in the hallway just needs to be forgotten. Or here's a better thing. We choose to believe the best. We choose to believe, you know what? I I bet they just had a lot on their mind. They didn't even realize they walked past me. Because I know them. They're nice. They They just were in the ozone. They must have been distracted. Unity is maintained as we remember who we are, as we allow God to work humility in our lives, as we allow God to work in us a gentle spirit, and you say, Brian, I don't have those things. I don't have humility. I don't have gentleness. Pray for them. Make them a part of what you regularly petition God for. Pray for humility. Pray for gentleness. Paul goes on, be patient, bearing with one another, In love. Patience is having an even disposition and a spirit. Listen to this. A spirit that tolerates prolonged provocation. Patience is having a long temper. 
Not meaning that your temper lasts for a long time. (laughs) Meaning that it takes a long time for you to become angry. Paul tells us to be patient. Here's a picture that I want you to think of. uh, Sort of of an illustration of patience. A large dog, you, you know, a really big dog, is lying on the floor just minding its own business. Trying to catch a few Z's. A small puppy, you know, one of the annoying yappers, stands in front of the large dog and just yaps its little head off. It is annoying the big dog to no end. The big dog could, we all know this, the big dog could with one bite put an end to the annoyance. But instead, he just lays there, he looks up at the little yapper, and he yawns. That is a picture of patience. Someone is provoking you. They are annoying you to no end. Maybe it's their personality. It just grates on you. Maybe it's a habit they have. Like you're a really punctual person, and they're habitually late. Maybe it's their fondness for offering you constructive criticism that forgot the constructive. (laughs) Maybe it's that they always have a better idea or a better story and it just drives you crazy. But instead of giving in to your annoyance and figuratively snapping their head off, figuratively, you just look at them You consider them, you think about their annoyance, and you figuratively yawn. This works in marriages. (laughs) Best marriage advice I can give you. Learn to yawn at each other more. Let let me explain. Let me explain. Doesn't sound like good marriage advice, but it is. Early in our marriage, Michelle and I did not see eye to eye on hardly anything. 24 years later, Michelle and I do not see eye to eye on hardly anything. And I mean anything. <laughs> All right. Needless to say, there was and there sometimes still is tension among us. But one of the best bits of marriage advice I ever received was from a friend who years ago, I have not done this recently, many, many years ago, listened to me complain about how much Michelle and I did not get along. And he gave me some very simple and direct marriage advice. Here's what it was. You both just need to give each other a break. Doesn't sound all that profound, does it? But I'll tell you what, it was really helpful. And he was right. Here's what we've discovered. Every annoyance that we allowed to develop into a conflict was not worth it. We needed to learn to be annoyed and deal with it. 
we needed to learn to disagree and conclude it wasn't worth a fight. We needed to be patient. We needed to give each other a break. It's good advice for marriages, and it's good advice for churches. Learn to yawn more, but not during the Sunday service. <laughs> By the way, I'll just mention again, this counsel that Paul gives is, is directed to churches, but this is good counsel in, in any uh, context, in a lot of different contexts. So unity in the church is maintained by our being patient with one another, by our just giving each other a break. Now Michelle and I, not always, but with increased frequency, can disagree about something, argue about something, reach absolutely no resolution, and walk away and let it go. Some of you might call that conflict avoidance. And that's a valid concern if the issue rises to the level that you need to deal with the conflict. The, the, the conflict is warranted. But friends, a lot of conflict that we involve ourselves in is not warranted. It can be rightly avoided if we can just have a little bit of this fruit of the Spirit called patience. Patience. Learn to be long-suffering for things that are annoying to you, but don't really warrant correcting. Don't really warrant conflict. It may drive some of you in here crazy that 50% of our church comes after church has started. That, that, may, that may drive some of you crazy. And you may see it as a big inconvenience that you have to let someone slide by you to an empty, an empty chair. But here's what patience does. It decides that that is an annoyance that you can deal with. Not one that demands conflict. You might like to fix all the people who aren't punctual... I know people who would like to fix people who aren't punctual. I know a person in this spot right here <laughs> who would like to fix people who aren't punctual. You'd at least like to offer a gentle encouragement. But you say, you know what? I don't need to. This is something I just don't need to deal with. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to say, I'm thankful that no matter what conflict they faced getting here, they came. And so you change your thinking. You, you have just a, a little bit, a little bit of patience. Paul says we're to be patient, bearing with one another in love. What is bearing with one another in love? It is making allowance for the faults and failures of others. It is making allowance for the differing personalities, the differing abilities, the differing temperaments that exist within the church. And here's a key thing. Bearing with one another in love goes beyond maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment. It goes beyond that. It means positive love toward people who irritate, disturb, annoy, 
and embarrass us. Unity is maintained as we are patient, bearing with one another in love. And Paul then writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This lets us know, first of all, that unity among believers is what this section of Scripture is talking about, and that we are to keep that unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here is a spiritual reality. When we come to faith in Christ... The Holy Spirit takes us from all of our different backgrounds, all of our different temperaments, all of our different personalities. The Holy Spirit makes us one. It is a spiritual reality. We are adopted into the one body of Christ. This is a basic unity, a spiritual reality that nothing can destroy. But by our fussing and fighting and resenting, Believers can act as though we aren't what we really are. We can act as though we are not one in Christ. To keep the unity of the Spirit means to live at peace with one another. It means to live consistent with this spiritual reality of being one in Christ. We do not create this unity among ourselves. God does, but we are called to preserve the unity that God has provided for us through the Holy Spirit. And we do this through what Paul refers to as the bond of peace. And here's what I think that that is. It is through the realization that in Christ we have been reconciled to God in each in each other. It is that realization. And realizing that this is our spiritual reality, that we have in fact been, been reconciled, that peace has been provided by God to us and to other believers, we allow this realization to be the bond that holds us together. It is the ligament that keeps members of Christ's body together in spite of wide natural differences. And so I'm tempted to to, to feel out of disunity, to feel in disunity with someone, to, to feel like I'm not one with someone. But I remember, no, 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 no. I am united with this person in Christ. There is a bond of peace that exists between me and this person. So not, no matter how I feel, this is the reality. We are one. So unity is maintained as we remember who we are, as we practice humility and gentleness, as we are patient, bear with one another in love, and as we realize and live consistent with the peace that God has purchased for us in Christ. And then there's a little bit more that we learn. Unity is maintained as we remember what we have in common. And and the text lists for us seven different things that we have in common with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just going to briefly mention them. First of all, We have each been made a part of one body. We are indwelled by one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We each, believers in Christ, have the one spirit living in us. We share one hope. Each of us have a common destiny that has been secured for us by Jesus Christ. We serve the one Lord... We share one faith, and we are one in baptism. Both the spiritual baptism by uh, which we receive uh, the, the Holy Spirit and are placed in the body of Christ, but we are also one in water baptism. 
where we have publicly declared our unity with one another in all identifying together with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we serve the one and only God who Paul says is above all, through all, and in all. So we have too much in common to allow our unity to be compromised by things that don't really matter so much. Things like personality conflicts and disagreements over debatable theological points and perceived offenses. So if you find yourself in conflict with a brother or sister, or if you find yourself in conflict with the church in general, Allow Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 to guide you to a more healthy place. Remember your lofty position. You belong to Christ. Does what has you upset really rise to the level of warranting conflict? Ask yourself this. Or, let's make it personal. You you say to yourself, or am I engaging in pettiness? That's beneath my high calling. Be humble and gentle. Take an inventory of yourself. Am I thinking of myself more highly than I ought to? Do I honestly ask this question? Do I esteem myself infallible and esteem everybody else stupid? Ask that question. Be patient, bearing with others in love. Be willing to suffer annoyance while still loving genuinely. Remember that we've been reconciled to each other. Peace is a spiritual reality that we're uh, not called, uh, that we're called to preserve, that we're called to walk out. And remember how much you have in common with your brothers and sisters. So much more weighty things than most of what would divide us. And I say most. Because there are those times when conflict is appropriate. But even in those times, we allow what we've looked at today to guide us in handling it well. Unity is important in a church. So important that, as I mentioned earlier, we try to guard our unity on the front end of people getting involved in the church. But here's what I want to leave you with today. Unity isn't just a big deal in churches, and it's not just a big deal because um, pastors and ministry leaders don't want problems. Unity is a big deal to Jesus as well. Our unity is very important to him. I want you to consider this prayer of Jesus found in John 17. He prays for all of his disciples, and he prays for all of those who would become his disciples through their witness. And he prayed, quote, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that... Uh, They may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity is important to Jesus. And did you notice what he said about unity among believers? He said that through the unity of believers, the world would know that God sent him and that God loves the church as he loved and loves Christ. Our unity testifies to the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ. I commend you, Vineyard Christian Church, because I believe this is a church with strong unity. But I charge you, Vineyard Christian Church, to be diligent about guarding our unity. Be diligent about keeping the unity of the Spirit. And I charge you to be on guard against the forces that would try to compromise our unity. And I charge you to learn from Paul how unity is maintained and to give yourself to maintaining our unity that testifies to the world about the love of God. Why don't you stand?